Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we, if we can uh, learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Professor Jani Leung from the University of Hong Kong, and the paper we are speaking about is Negotiating Language Status in Multilingual Jurisdictions, Rhetoric and Reality. Nice to speak to you today, Doctor. Thanks for having me, Chris. So the paper that we're speaking about is in relation to uh, the use of English in a, a multilingual space. And I would like to, first of all, uh, ask you, let's get right into the fundamentals of what you're speaking about. You state mm -hmm. early in your paper that language choice is political. It, yes. It's a, a way to establish you know, things that extend to all language choices. Do you think that this is something that is true in relation to international societies or organizations with one or more official languages? So perhaps it would be useful to point out that the context in which I made the statement has to do with the choice of language, not in an everyday kind of setting, but in official settings. So I would definitely say that um, that kind of choices is very political. And I would say that it's especially the case in international organizations and societies. If you think about like the official languages of the UN, um, we have five of the six languages because of the allies of the Second World War. Like right now, if you look at the, the kind of uh, uh, the most popular languages in the world, the UN actually doesn't reflect that, right? So it's not, it doesn't reflect demographics, it reflects the political union. Um, so there is that. And I think there is the further, a further question we can ask is whether in a more everyday setting that every choice, language choice that we make is also political. I would probably go as far as saying that as well, um, because every act of inclusion is an act of exclusion. And you can have very good reasons for your exclusion. So it's not, I mean, that to say that something is political doesn't necessarily mean it is bad or ill-justified. But I would say that it is always political. In the context of Hong Kong, mm -hmm. how are points of discussion excluded if they're not included in English language discourse? Um, in the case of Hong Kong, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, so we have a, pop, the pop, a population that largely speaks Chinese even though English has been an official language for a long time and since the hand, since shortly before the handover, Chinese has also become an official language. So we're officially bilingual as a jurisdiction. And um, it was a problem during the colonial days that um, because English was used predominantly, especially in legal settings, that a lot of local populations were excluded or they were afraid to use law as a means of resolving conflict um, because they had to resort to English. And everything becomes more expensive as well if you have to rely on interpretation, translation, and all of that. So, so language policy there definitely has um, the effect of excluding certain populations. And I would also really emphasize that in Hong Kong, other than the majority who speak Chinese, we also have a lot of ethnic minorities. Um, they may be of South Asian descent. Um, they, they come from different places, really. There is a long history of cosmopolitanism in Hong Kong, um, even though when we think about Hong Kong, we mostly think about the, the Han Chinese population. So for them, there is an everyday struggle. Um, 
because the bilingualism in Hong Kong doesn't necessarily cater to um, their uh, language needs. So recently I finished a project uh, with the Equal Opportunities Unit in Hong Kong, looking into the shortcomings of uh, minority language interpretation um, in public settings, such as hospitals, encounters, police stations, and other settings. Yeah. We've recently had on our podcast a, a person who is working in Japan as an interpreter in uh, situations that you've highlighted in terms mm -hmm. of medical, police, mm -hmm. Uh, legal situations. Um, how much support is afforded to people who who cannot speak Cantonese, who cannot speak uh, even English, um, mm -hmm. to these kinds of necessary functions of daily life? Right. So right now, um, the most supported space, like social setting, is courtroom. So if you become a defendant in the case, then it's almost always guaranteed that there'll be someone who interprets for you. But this is a rare situation in a more kind of everyday con context, people might, you know, are more likely to have a hospital encounter, for example. So mostly the government relies on a few intermediaries. So these are um, some of them are nonprofit organizations that provide interpreting services. Um, so it's there, but it may not be timely enough. So there are reports of people, minority, ethnic minorities, having gone through a whole hospital procedure without understanding what he has gone through because the, the interpretation service may not be timely enough. And if your operation is urgent, maybe they just couldn't arrange in time. So there is a question of timeliness. And separately, there's a question of, um, there's currently no official accreditation process for interpreters in Hong Kong. And that's something we looked into as well in my project. Um, you have an accreditation system in, in countries like Australia, in the US, but not every country has that. So there is the question of quality control, um, whether the kind of interpreters that these nonprofits are able to assemble together, whether they provide quality service. Mm. Just to go back to the, the, uh, the paper that we're speaking about, negotiating uh, language status in multilingual jurisdictions, rhetoric and reality. Some people who are listening to this may know this, but I, I have made it clear to uh, Professor Leung before the uh, interview began that I do have a background in the law, but nothing to the the, the depth that that she does. In reading her paper, I. I did have some questions in relation to how the law could be interpreted when it comes to multilingual spaces. So when interpreting legislation and statutes, I always understood that it was necessary to go back to the rhetoric used in, for example, parliamentary debates uh, where the laws were being passed. Uh, how possible is this in multilingual situations like how much can you go back to how the people who were expressing their opinions in the parliament in order to you know understand how judges can even make decisions in these cases um i would first note that to my understanding it's actually not that common for judges to have to go back to parliamentary debates usually mm -hmm. i mean there's an approach in legal interpretation where they want to focus just on the text um, the assumption is that when these lawmakers come together and make laws, 
um, when they reach a compromise, and, and the text is what represents the compromise. So sometimes um, they might want to go back to parliamentary debates, but they don't always do that. So, so that's, that's my first point. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to multilingual jurisdictions, um, so part of my research looks into how multilingual statutes are interpreted. In some jurisdictions, they are better than others in looking at um, two languages or three languages in which uh, through which the law was formed in Canada or in the EU or in the WTO, they're pretty good at going back um, and comparing different languages. Uh, but usually only when at least one party alleges that, okay, no, there is a discrepancy. So if we look at that Danish version, if we look at that French version, I will have a different interpretation. Usually they rely on someone bringing this up um, instead of um, you know, diligently checking all language versions in every case of interpretation. You can't really blame them for that. Um, but there are also kind of suggestions. Um, some research has shown that if, if judges do go back to the bilingual, multilingual uh, versions of the text, perhaps sometimes they wouldn't even have encountered the interpretation problems they have, that they have in the first place. So that's multilingual interpretation. There is like in the domestic setting, and in some international organizations, I'd be really curious, and I haven't looked into it yet, um, to look into multilingual treaties, how they're interpreted, because mostly they're interpreted domestically. Mm -hmm. And so they don't even have the kind of linguistic resources they can draw from um, domestically uh, to, to look into how these treaties should be read. So I'm pretty sure if someone looks into it, that's going to be really interesting findings. Could I ask you, are you a qualified lawyer? Um, I have studied law, but I'm not a practicing lawyer. So when you come to things like statutes and mm -hmm. the published works, mm -hmm. how do you approach them? What, what, is your, um, what is your approach in terms of, are you, are you, are you a researcher? Are you a, a, an instructor? Uh, are you a lawyer? Like what, what approach do you have for the works that you are uh, being presented with? I think I've never called myself a lawyer. I think I can at best call myself an academic lawyer of some sort. I'm really a, a researcher interested in interactions between law and language. And I came to topics of law. I mean, when I studied law, I was already a trained linguist. So I've always looked at law through the lens of language. And so that was throughout during like my, my own study of law and then in my current research as well. So there might be this disciplinary bias that I bring into uh, how I look at law. So when you come up to uh, like, a, like a, a statute that is mm -hmm. available in Hong Kong, how do you approach it? Do you approach it in terms of the way that it's written, the way that it's uh, intended? Uh, do you take a look at the background of it? I, I, I only ask because this is basically my training of how to understand the law in its context. That's a pretty abstract question. Um, let me think of to see whether I have a kind of good way of answering that. Because I always come to these statutes or cases with a research question in my mind. So I think that really depends on what question I have in my mind at the time. So when I looked into questions of legal interpretation, usually I start with cases instead of the statutes that, um, that are involved because it's in cases where you can see, okay, so here is a case 
in which there's an alleged difference in, in inter interpretation across the language versions. So then I look into how the courts attempt to resolve the conflict. Um, there's a lot of cross-jurisdiction comparison that I do as well. So I'm, I'm not particularly, um, um, I haven't actually studied law in Hong Kong. My, uh, my training was mostly in the UK, so I'm not an expert on Hong Kong law. But what I do is I look at the same kind of language problem that appears in legal cases in Hong Kong, and I compare with other jurisdictions, similar cases to see how they tackle the same language problems. So it's not a very legalistic approach, really. Well, uh, then we have a very similar background because the only law that I've uh, studied is in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, in your comparison to uh, the UK and Hong Kong, have you noticed any difference in the way that legal professionals interpret the law? Mm. I'm not sure whether I noticed something in terms of interpretation, but there are definitely interesting contrasts if you kind of look at the UK as a jurisdiction and Hong Kong as a jurisdiction. Um, because former colonies are like time capsules in a way. Um, I think the UK has evolved, the legal system has evolved a lot more quickly in the last in, in certain in certain ways, <laughs> and in Hong Kong, there are other legal developments going on as well. Um, but I think it's really interesting that Hong Kong has retained a lot of archaic UK law that we're still using, and then we are we have retained more formality in in courtroom decorum than in the UK. The UK got rid of like wigs in the Supreme Court. UK, I Hong do not Kong's... agree with that, by the way. <laughs> you do not agree with this change. <laughs> well, you, you'll you'll notice, but uh, you know, this is this is not a, a video podcast. But I, I would prefer to have a wig. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of like courtroom decorums, there, there are lots of ways in which um, uh, they're interesting contrast. Um, but I don't think I have an immediate observation for you in terms of interpretation that's different. Well, maybe not in terms of interpretation, but in, in the way that it is recognized by the court. So I, I've, I've never uh, been in a, a Hong Kong court. So could you give us some, some background in how, let's say, like a normal criminal case is tried before, is it before a tribunal? Is it before a group of magistrates? Like, how does it operate in Hong Kong? Well, um, I think this question gets into really like knowledge about Hong Kong law that I'm not sure whether I'm the best person to provide an answer. I mean, I've, obs I've observed some trials. Well, have, have you have you have you been to have you observed court yes, I have operations? Yeah, yeah sure. So, so how yeah, does it so, work? So I'm I'm just saying I'm not the best person to comment on the whole kind of legal procedure because uh, I haven't done criminal law in Hong Kong. But um, yes, so for criminal cases, depending on actually the the severity. Of the case they could go into magistrate courts they can go into district courts they're kind of different levels that they can go into um i think the decision has to do with as far as i understand has to do with um what the maximum punishment is so it's lower for magistrate court it's higher in district also depending on how severe um and then we still have jury trial um and, and I, i'm aware that in, in the uk there's debate about whether to retain um, jury trial or not and that's still, still something that is being practiced in Hong Kong except for the latest kind of national security law cases which we don't have to go into which right we now. don't have to go into <laughs> <laughs> in relation to just let, let's say 
small level, um, I say small level, but, you know, magistrate courts in the UK tend to be lower level criminal cases. It might be theft, uh, things like breaking and entering. They're they're not, they're not uh, violent cases, but they are things that need to be put before uh, a magistrate court of your peers, maybe not before the jury. Mm-hmm. In your understanding, uh, do you think that uh, Hong Kong has, in Hong Kong, they are more strict in terms of how they are judging these kind of lower level cases? Of course, you know, all criminal cases are criminal cases. So we we don't want to judge one less than the other, particularly when, you know, damage is incurred. But in Hong Kong, are they following kind of the the older school UK model rather than uh, level of magistrate jurisdictions in in the UK? So when you mean uh, what you mean by strict is in terms of punishment, uh, not, yeah, not but, in terms well, of formality. Both. So in terms of who is judging and what the uh, what the punishment is. Um, I don't think I my research directly looked into that kind of comparison. Like, let's say for the same crime, how much you know more severe um, does someone get punished in Hong Kong versus the UK? That's that, that hasn't been part of my research from the grade. Okay, well let, let, let's get back to the paper then. Yeah. And so another question that I have is that you highlight the often pejorative language that's used to describe other languages, mm-hmm. um, such as lacking sub- subtlety or directness. Um, the same terms are often used to describe localized varieties of English in relation to the standards of first language users of mm-hmm. English. Um, so in your classes or your work, have you come across these attitudes? And if you've found them, how do you overcome them, address them? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, in my work, one thing that I try to do to overcome these perceptions it's basically pointing out how absurd they are um so uh, in in some of my work i've pointed out that the english have had at one point um had this impression that the french language was much better legal language how could we even attempt to replace french with english which is you know more everyday and doesn't have the same sophistication they had exactly the same conversation before and this is the same conversation is now happening happening in um, former colonies of the uk and and where they're talking about how the local languages are not good enough um, so so i think just pointing out that the debate has happened before kind of uh, shows how absurd it is um, in my own teaching, I think, I think the, this kind of discourse also reflects a static view of language. So um, it's basically the idea that language doesn't evolve. When you look at it, it doesn't have a word for this, and therefore it is you know, not good enough. But of course, language evolves, and especially when you put it in like, new settings, when you have different you know, contact um, with a new, like if you were to transform uh, a legal system and, and, and have more languages involved, there, these languages will develop as a result. And at the end of the day, it's really important as well in my classes that I kind of let them understand that whether it's talking about accent, whether it's talking about features of English, it's often language, it's often not a question of language, it's language being used as an othering mechanism. 
um, to say that you know the others are not good enough, they're not part of the norm. So just being able to see that, I think, could change minds. So when you talk about your classes, are you mainly using, are you teaching ELF, ELS? Um... No, so my school doesn't, is not involved in, in any of that teaching. Uh, we mm. do, so I teach uh, language and law courses. So we have um, a BA, LLB, double degree program. So we have a small class of uh, majors who do law and English. I also teach the politics of English. So uh, we do um, uh, some literary courses and we do some linguistics courses in the school. Okay, well, let's talk about the politics of English. Sure. What are the foundational concepts of such a course? Interesting. Um, I think this course title kind of gives enough flexibility that when we have different instructors teaching the same course, they use a quite a different approach. Um, for me, I a strong component of the course has to do with exploring the symbolic power of language. So as opposed to the instrumental functions of language and, and why that matters. And lots of scholars, so two texts that I use um, in my current uh, version of the course, the Ingrid Pillar has a really interesting book on um, language and social justice. And then there is uh, Cranch who has a book on building on Baudu's work, a book on um, um, the symbolic power of language. So using these as uh, a basis, I try to explore with my students the question of why English is the dominant language today, how we ended up with, oh, you have it on your shelf? I can see you're pulling up. Yeah, so that, that's an earlier uh, um, I know, I know. book that, that, that she has, yeah. So I'm a big fan. Um, both authors. Yeah. Um, so yeah, one, one strong anchor of the, the course has to do with exploring the symbolic power of language, which especially, um, this is an MA course that we have and a lot of our MA students have uh, an English teaching background. Um, one phenomenon that these authors both of them point out is in language education training, they often focus on the instrumental functions of language, but kind of shutting out the whole symbolic dimensions. And this is a course that attempts to bring back that whole discussion. Yeah, uh, sorry, just to, uh, for uh, we're not a, a, a video podcast. So during mm -hmm. this um, uh, outlay, I pulled off my shelf the book uh, Language and Culture by Claire Cramsh, which is something that I have referred to many times uh, in the past. The ideas of language and culture being something that are you cannot separate them but also that the cultural aspects that come into a a, a country uh they can be used for the betterment of that situation so i i kind of do want to keep on the 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 train of uh language and law which is something that we mm -hmm. haven't really uh touched on in our entire podcast series. And it's the one thing that I maybe have some uh, connection to. And my, my general question in relation to this is in relation to the language used in courtrooms mm -hmm. in a place like Hong Kong, where mm -hmm. you highlight in your work, there are, there are multiple languages and multiple cultural backgrounds that uh, are manifest in this mm -hmm. area. And, I would like to know whether 
any kind of code switching occurs or whether there is you know, a new kind of Hong Kong legal language or legal lexicon that is being developed because this is how I see English as a, an international or a multicultural language. I think this is how it's going to be developed in, in these specific concepts. So based on your experience, is this something that you've observed? Thanks for the question. I'm going to give a slightly longer answer, if that's okay. That's so there's fine. the part on um, code switching and there's the part on Hong Kong legal English, which I'm going to come back to. But I want to just talk a little bit about what you mentioned about the relationship between language and culture and sure. how this relates to language and law. I think that could be an interesting um, bit that we can explore a little bit and then I can come back to um, those two points that you raised. Um, because that your your discussion just reminded me of some work that I've done as well, um, because you, you've been curious about the contrast between UK and Hong Kong courtroom. So one dimension, one cultural dimension, so not which has nothing to do with the severity of punishment, but one cultural contrast that might be interesting. Um, um, so I've, <laughs> I've a small collection of uh, interactions that happened in uh, magistrate courts in Hong Kong. So relatively you know, lower courts, in, relatively informal, um, in which I've observed Cantonese mannerisms in the way that judges interacted with um, the rest of the courtroom, uh, which I think may be unique to Hong Kong in ways that are different from, from British courtrooms. Um, one example is there was a 26-year-old arsonist um, who was you know, tried for, for his crime. Um, Unfortunately for him, this was the second time he was charged with the same crime, and he came across the same magistrate who was furious at him. And what I thought was really interesting was he, the judge didn't just scold the defendant. He was scolding the parents who were in the room. <laughs> it's, I think, I mean, this has to do with, I think, a cultural notion that... <clears throat> Um, in, in Chinese that as long I mean your your children forever in the eyes of your parents and the parents regardless of how old your children have gone they would be fully adult you're still kind of responsible for them in some ways which is kind of has a huge contrast to the kind of western concept of well it, it does it does and it, it, but it, all, it also comes back to um, a couple of interviews that we've done in Confucianism mm -hmm. and the idea mm -hmm. of filial piety yeah. that you are responsible for your children and your children should be respectful of you mm -hmm. and it's something that isn't brought up enough i think in european courts which is mm -hmm. that there is a community related aspect to certain crimes which might be not enough observation so mm -hmm. for i think a judge in hong kong to i think that's a, that's a, 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 a confucian way of looking at criminal activity which is yes of, of course you are personally responsible for it but mm -hmm. someone needs to mm -hmm. take a look at this yeah um it may well be um i think there's a clearer separation of kind of individual responsibility and kind of the community in a western setting like even if you're a mass murderer um in the uk people wouldn't start kind of questioning the integrity of the parents or their behavior or like the lack of supervision maybe they should i don't know <laughs> um, but i thought that would be one interesting kind of example kind of which uh, goes back to your earlier question but okay let me come back to what you were asking about code switching and hong kong legal english um well i'll start by just pointing out that in current um social linguistic uh, uh 
discourse, there's um, code switching has become a relatively contentious concept um, that there's now um, a more popular term, translanguaging, that, that people prefer to use, which refers to um, more to how multilinguals draw resources from their linguistic repertoire and focusing less on kind of linguistic competence. So I'm, I'm happy to use either, either term. But yes, there is a lot of mixing in Hong Kong courtrooms. Um, so there, especially when trials, like a lot of, especially lower court trials now happen in Cantonese. Mm-hmm. Um, and often you see a pattern of code switching in which when lawyers and when the judges have to use legal concepts, they use English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, then a lot of the discussions about facts that would then happen in Cantonese, and it's it's seen as an, an efficient way for them to handle the cases, um, which can create problems when the defendant couldn't understand some of the concepts that are being discussed in the courtroom. Well, how, how much language support is given to you know the, de- the defendants and the 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 advocates in the in the trial when maybe the two people who are involved, maybe the advocate and the defendant, don't use the same language as their first language, how much support is available in the court for that? So if, if the language of the trial is not your first language, or if you just kind of say that you don't have enough competency in the language of the, the, the trial, of course you have the right uh, to an interpreter, which in Hong Kong we're actually pretty good at. Um, of course, it's a universal right, and but in practice, um, there could be challenges depending on the, the language varieties, Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's one problem that any jurisdiction face um, um, in, in, in the space of interpreting where you could have an English-Chinese interpreter, but you might have a Nigerian-English speaker who, um, who, who speaks a variety that's different from the interpreters, what they are used to. So, so um, that, that's a, a, a problem. So what would be the situation where none of the parties in the court case have a same first language, so someone who is using English as a second language and the judge or the advocate is using English as a second language. Could you give us an example of how this might manifest itself in a court case? I think I I can imagine in some cases like a bridging translation or interpretation can happen. But one example that I have in mind comes from a case that I didn't observe in Hong Kong, but in Guangzhou where there is a sizable um, African community doing trades. And uh, the case that I observed involved a Nigerian English speaker who was found to have smuggled drugs into the country. And um, it's interesting in the case that I observed, I think the interpreter clearly was trained in whatever British English or American English, so very competent um, in, in, in a variety that we are more familiar with. Um, but struggled with understanding Nigerian English. And um, in the trial that I observed, I have observed um, spaces in which there was misinterpretation um, when the um, interpreter meant to ask, where was something located? Um, um, Like as in on your body, Um, he, this, this, uh, the defendant, kind of gave an answer that has to be to do to do with a location in Africa. So kind of misunderstanding. Um, and then I think more um, worryingly, there was um, 
um, also misunderstanding in terms of actually the defendant's stance on the case. So whether he just kind of pleaded, pleaded like straight up guilty or whether he was actually trying to explain, um, no, I did what I did, but I didn't know what I was doing at the time. You know, when someone gave me this pack of stuff, he didn't know what was in it. So there was kind of some miscommunication like that as well. But I think this is not a problem unique to this Honjo courtroom. It has to do with all these varieties of languages that people have. And in an official setting, uh, when imagine if you're the one who's trying to find, okay, I need a team of interpreters who can cover up, like uh, can cover all these uh, uh, language spaces. It, it is a common problem not to be able to find someone who speaks the exact variety. Um, that you will need in the courtroom. And, and um, I don't know what a good solution is to that, really. Well, to go back to a word that you used beforehand, the word of simplicity. Mm -hmm. And what I was always taught is that lawyers and people who draft legal documents always try to make it as simple as possible and abhor complexity, which is why... Um, I think it was T.E. Lawrence who said that, uh, you know, lawyers abhor the dash. They don't like, they don't like punctuation. They would prefer that things are clearly delineated and they don't want things to be possibly misinterpreted by people on the bench. What can be done to make English easier for people on the bench who are lawyers I mean, even people who are before the bench to understand legal English better? I think you asked a really interesting question. Um, I think there are two concepts there that might be um, confusing. So there is what you mentioned about simplicity, but I think what you really mean may be clarity. And um, in legal drafting, of course, there's a lot of emphasis on, on clarity. Uh, you know, you try to kind of spell out all possibilities, um, you know, the end and alls, you want to kind of make lists. But clarity often comes into conflict with simplicity, actually. So the biggest complaint that people have when they look into legal language or legal English in particular is how actually complex legal language is um, because lawyers want to be clear. So the, that's the tension between clarity and simplicity there for you. And in fact, there's all these um, um, simple uh, drafting kind of effort to simplify um, drafting or simplify legislation to make them kind of clearer. And in fact, there's a whole community uh, that I was I'm part of. Uh, sometimes they're known as forensic linguists. I don't like the term, but I, I I'm really part of a language and law global community um, where there are people whose focus is on working on simplifying laws for the people, simplifying jury instructions, simplifying uh, uh, verbal warnings. So, so that's part of the work of language and law scholarship that's going on. So let's take a look at, at, at that concept of forensic uh, linguistics. So going through this idea, is there anything, because what I understand about the development of things like English uh, as an international language or English for specific purposes, which of course would include legal reasons, is there anything that you would recommend that should be taken out of the language to make it clearer? 
to the people who are getting these directions. Is there anything that you have noticed uh, in your research or in your background in the law that you think uh, makes English more difficult and should perhaps be removed for this specific purpose? Oh, I've never kind of thought about the question this way, kind of what elements should be removed. I think um, if you look into the legal English scholarship, there's a lot of, um, you can look at the complexity from, from different angles. There is syntactic complexity. There is um, the use of archaic phrases that are often redundant. There might be reasons, there may be good historical reasons of why you retain these phrases, these legal phrases. Often it has to do with historical origin. So you want to combine a Latin word and French word and English, Anglo-Saxon word, just to kind of <laughs> uh, cover the ground. Uh, but I don't know whether that's necessary anymore. Um, but of course, any operation like that could be when you make a legal change like that, okay, we're going to stop using these terms and we're going to start using these new terms. And it could create new interpretation problems in the courtroom uh, when there is kind of uh, uh, alleged you know, discrepancies between the old terms and the new terms. So it is a complicated question. So I don't have a simple answer as to what components we might want to be taking out. But if I were to take out something, I think high on my list would be some of those archaic phrases. For example, Latin, Franco, Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, Latin or like cease and disease. Like, so it's kind of like all these kind of parallels, like like two nouns or three nouns attached together. They all mean similar things, mm -hmm. all these phrases. Yeah. I mean, they were there initially to cover the ground, but over time, it's just one meaning over time. But um, all these examples where they intentionally draw from Latin and French and Anglo-Saxon to make sure that... Um, um, like a similar meaning, it's, it's uh, words containing a similar meaning covers all these different grounds. Yeah. Well, let's just take a, a look at the idea of like Latin, Franco, Anglo-Saxon meanings in terms of legal phraseology. Do you think that there is an argument that these should be phased out, that there should be perhaps uh, a more common use understanding of uh, legal language in order that people who are charged with a crime, wherever they are in the world, mm -hmm. if they are under a, a former English legal system, that they would understand it better in their particular context? I think one good reason uh, for replacing some of these phrases have to do with the multilingual context. So thinking from the perspective of a translator or an interpreter, it's hard to translate these phrases because you just render them into slightly similar words that don't actually contain the same kind of information about historical origin that that was kind of meant to be the reason why they were there in the first place. So especially in a multilingual setting, I would I would say that yeah, it's particularly hard um, and potentially confusing. Um, for people when you have these similarly worded phrases just stringed together. Mm. Well, to kind of finish off our interview okay. today, there's, a, there's a, a phrase that I have been using in my recent research, which is the uh, return diaspora. So the diaspora of English was moving out to the, the colonies, um, to places like India, Pakistan, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Australia, New Zealand, uh, 
South America and obviously North America, but I mean, they, they had their own pushback against that. Um, but the, the return diaspora is how former colonies inform the, the development of English going forward, which I'm uh, very much in, in favor of learning from how the language has been used in different places. I mean, uh, just to give some context, I've lived in Japan now for the last 20 years, and I, I've, I've seen how English has uh, affected, well, my family and uh, affected the ways that things uh, occur uh, in Japan, but also phrases that have been used that now are used in regular English. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything in a legal sense that you think that... Uh, you know, the experience in Hong Kong that the return diaspora could affect and make, uh, as we as we looked at the term clarity, could make the language more clear to people who have only ever used English in a first language use context. I mean, is there anything that could make the understanding of language easier? Well, you could have meanings of words clarified because one function of translation which one function that people don't talk about a lot is the function of clarification because when you translate something you often have to really understand what something means so it is a theoretical possibility but i don't have a practical example for you as to you know whether there was something from hong kong a particular word or phrase or that we can kind of bring back uh, to the global English community in, in terms of clarifying our understanding of it. But I can see a lot of kind of more everyday example of this kind of return diaspora in terms of um, um, kind of exporting of, of words and phrases from these, you know, what some people would call peripheral spaces um, kind of back to the core. Um, I mean, if we look at kind of what uh, the OEB every year the kind of new words that publicized there's almost always different places hong kongers became one of them i think um, a few years ago and then a lot of food items as well so so it's definitely a possibility well let's turn the question around then so do you, do you have a background in english law and english language speaking law so you graduated from where I have an LLB from University of London and an LLM from Yale. So okay. UK and US. Yeah. Okay. All right. They, they, they seem like legitimate institutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but going back to Hong Kong, yes. what did you realize, you know, having observed cases mm-hmm. in the UK and in Hong Kong, is there anything that you realized that there was something very different in the way that they were being administrated? Is there anything that you... Uh, you thought that the UK was doing right, or that the uh, in Hong Kong that they were they were doing better. The immediate answer I have in my head actually has more to do with the shock I had when I um, studied law in the US. So, kind of my understanding of law prior to that was mostly from the UK and in Hong Kong, and then when I came into contact with the US system, it kind of it was mind-boggling. <laughs> how the American system works. It's not just the wigs, right? Um, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> I mean the whole the whole um, Supreme Court, like how you can have elected judges in the US um, boggles the mind. Um, there's that, and then like how the Supreme Court works, how they get to pick cases, depending on the political climate that's going on at right, the time. Right. Um, for me, the biggest kind of shock I had in terms of contrast between the system was more when I was in contact with US law. 
I, I'm, I'm assuming that I have an answer to this, but I'd like to ask it to you. Uh, which system of law do you think is closer to what's happening in Hong Kong right now, the UK system or the US system? UK, I think it's still mostly very British. And based on your background and based on your expertise, do you think that this is the correct way for legal cases to be handled in Hong um, Kong? I don't know about correctness, but in terms of the practical reality that's happening in Hong Kong, um, even though we, just, we have a legal system that's mostly a British import, it is undergoing a lot of changes, mostly um, um, under the influence of China because we are now part of China and there's uh, a lot of mainlandization going on. So in that regard, um, yeah, there are lots of changes. In, and, and I think if we keep observing in this space, we're going to find that um, there's going to be features in the legal system I mean, even now there are features in the legal system that are not recognizable by a UK lawyer. Um, like any cases that have to do with national security, they are handled completely differently. Some assumptions completely reversed. Um, um, jurors no longer guaranteed. We can have closed door trials. So all those things are new and are happening in Hong Kong. I'm not in a position to comment on what is kind of more correct and what is better, but changes are coming. So we've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Jani Leung from the University of Hong Kong on her paper, Negotiating uh, Language Status in Multilingual Jurisdictions, Rhetoric and Reality. Thank you very much for your time today, uh, Dr. Leung. And I hope at some point in the future that we will have the chance to speak again. This was a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.